If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn again to the passage that Claire read a moment or two ago, to Revelation chapter 21. And we're focusing on the latter half of chapter 21, as you know, this morning. Last Sunday morning and in previous Sunday mornings, we have been steadily working our way through the book of Revelation. And as we're coming to this latter half of chapter 21, we're beginning to get to the point, this is our penultimate study in Revelation, and we're beginning to get to the point that we have a sense of the concluding drama of the entire book. And that's where we're going in our study this morning. Now many of you will be aware that on a Friday I send out an email to the entire congregation and usually it's filled with news and events of things happening over the weekend. And this past Friday I sent out an email as I do each week and I often try and include something that I have found funny or imaginative or something that's captured my mind in one way or another and this past Friday I put out an email with this picture on it and it was of a puppy dog and it read like this it said this is Buddy I bought him as a surprise present for my husband but it turns out he's allergic to dogs so unfortunately I'm going to have to find a new home for him and I'm wondering if anyone out there can help. His name is Alan, he's 61, he's great at DIY, he drives a nice car and plans wonderful holidays. Now I was so tickled by that, I thought it was so funny and of course I enjoyed it because the further you read into the email, of course it ended up with things are not as they always seem. And that phrase, things are not what they seem, in many ways sums up the book of Revelation from chapter 1 all the way through to next Sunday morning when we get to chapter 22, the Apostle John in essence is saying again and again and again and again, please understand that in this spiritual realm, by the grace of God, his purposes and plans and eternal decrees will come to fruition and things are not always as they seem. In fact, that's not a theme that's restricted simply to Revelation. Matthew chapter 1, in fact, when Matthew writes his gospel, Matthew writes a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Mark, in a similar fashion, writes the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. And Luke's gospel begins, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And then John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And each of the Gospel writers, in their own way, are saying to both their first century readers and their 21st century readers, the further and further you get into this book, understand this. Things are not what they seem. 
And when we started 20, chapter 21 last Sunday morning, do you remember how it began? It began, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And that's where we're going in the rest of our study. And in fact, last Sunday morning, if you were with us, we said that chapter 21 in many ways remodels, refashions, recreates reality as we know it. And as we get further into chapter 21, God begins to reveal a whole new reality for the entirety of his created order, universe, galaxy, Milky Way, a whole new created order. And that's where we're going in our study this morning. There have been, we freely confess, I think you would agree, Sunday mornings as we've been working through Revelation that have been bewildering, at times incomprehensible, the imagery, the symbolism that John uses, at times we have struggled with to make sense. But what we've also discovered is this, that the more we're willing to look at it, the deeper we're willing to go, the more God wonderfully spectacular spectacularly opens up his word and we begin to understand and comprehend exactly what he is saying. Last Sunday morning, not only did he say, I will create a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, I will create a new Jerusalem, a city created by God. Not only is he the architect, he is the contractor. And we heard our lady singing about it moments ago, that wonderful, spectacular, infinite place where God, God in all of his fullness dwells. That's the picture emerging from chapter 21. In fact, in verse 4 it says this, and I will stop our summary of 21 here and begin to get on to the second half, when John writes of God saying, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, and no more mourning, and no more crying, and no more pain, for the old order has passed away. And last Sunday we said that means this, that there will be no more aeroplanes falling from the sky as a result of a terrorist incident. There will be no more eights and nine-year-olds blaming themselves when divorce creeps into a family and the family is now decimated as a result and children no longer blaming themselves. No more widows standing at the graveside of a husband taken unmercifully with Alzheimer's or dementia. No more family members whose funerals we attend, whose body has been riddled by cancer and we no longer recognize them. No more parents appearing live for news broadcasts, grieving over their teenagers who left to go to school that morning and will never come home. All of those days are gone. They are behind us. For there is a new heaven and a new earth. A city belonging to God. And a new world. And a new heaven was created. And John takes us a little further. A little deeper at verse 9. 
and he writes one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me come I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain, great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel. Let me confess this morning, and I mean this most sincerely, this is a passage that makes me uncomfortable. It unsettles me. I'm unnerved because I am not sure I want to experience the glory of God in all of its fullness. I'm not sure I do. And I'm not sure I do for this reason. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Very God of very God. Holy in essence. Eternal in love. Immeasurable in grace. Transcendent in majesty. And I know my own heart and my own soul. And I could not be in his presence and survive. I couldn't. Except for this biblical truth. That before the foundation of the world. God in infinite love. Shed his love and affection upon his children and throughout our lives he has been drawing us to himself and orchestrating and engineering our entire lives that we might know him in a fuller, deeper, richer way. That's what's going on here. That's what John is talking about. So let me ask you this morning, is there deep within an innate passionate longing that you might know him in all of his fullness. That's what's going on here. Do you have an appetite for the things of God, a thirst for his presence, that longing desire to know him intimately and deeply? That's what John is saying here. And John goes on to tell us That there is no temple there. And there will never be darkness. And no more sin. And no more pain. And no more disappointment. Because the intoxicating, tranquilizing, addictive, deceptive power of sin will be no more. And we will be done with it. Disgusted by it. And it will have no more attraction for us. Why? Because God in all of his fullness will be there. And notice what else John says. He takes it a step further. Verse 12, he said it had a great high wall with 12 gates 
and with twelve angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the name of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three in the north, and three in the south, and three on the west. And what is he telling us? He is trying with all of the restrictions of language that he can to say the eternal purposes of God are firmly based on his promises from the past. And when we hold to apostolic teaching, when we live in surrender and submission and obedience to the word of God and the promises of God, that's how we get to know him in that richer, fuller way. That's what he's telling us right here. And then he takes us further again. And he says, verse 15, The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and in height and in width. Now what is John telling us? Is John giving us the statistics, the size, the measurements of the new Jerusalem? No. Throughout Revelation, John talks in symbolic terms rather than in statistics. And what he's telling us here is this, imagine a city. He says it's like a city. What did he say? 12,000 stadia. That is 1,400 miles in length. That's from here to across the Mississippi. Can you imagine? Just in length and then in width and then in height. And there's only one other place in Scripture where the things of God are described in 3D. And it's at the heart of the old temple in Jerusalem. It's the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was found. That's where it was based. And when folks would go to the temple to offer up sacrifice, pigeons, a goat, sometimes a lamb, there would be burnt offerings with feast days and holidays and great celebrations. And John is telling us, but there will no longer be a need for that in the new Jerusalem. Because God himself, in all of his wonder and glory, will be right there. No more sacrifices, no more offerings. But we will see him as he is. As he is. It's difficult to get your heart and mind and soul round that. We need to enlarge our minds. Let our hearts soar heavenwards in order to get a sense of what is going on here. And notice what he says. He begins to describe the city in unimaginable terms of infinite worth of jewels and gold and precious stones. And then in verse 22, I did not see a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The risen, exalted Christ right there. 
right there. I know we sometimes tease one another about what heaven will be like. We sometimes talk about the surprises we'll get when we get to heaven. And we tease each other and we say things like, when I get there, I'll look out and I'll see what someone and I'll think, how on earth are they here? Only to discover that they will be looking at us and say, how on earth did they get here? But the first thing we will do is we will fall down flat on our faces, prostrate in the presence of God, seeking to abase ourselves in the dust because we will realize His enormity and our own insignificance. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What a day that will be. What a moment that will be. And we'll be able to do that for the first billion or so years. And the passage tells us this. Verse 23, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. What is going on there? The kings of the earth, why do they have any kind of role here? Remember, John is writing in the first century, in ancient antiquity. And the kings then represented peoples and countries and nations and cultures. And John, in essence, is saying this. Every ethnic group, every culture you can imagine will be there. Because he has loved down through eternity. Every tribe and every tongue and every nation will have people represented there. There will be people from Greenville. And people from Scotland. And people from Switzerland. And Tahiti. And Indonesia. And Russia. And Japan. And China. And India. And the African subcontinent. Every nation. And they will bring. What is it they say? They will bring their splendor into it. And let me encourage you to use your imagination here. Because at the beginning of the chapter he says, And I am making everything new. Not I will, but I am making everything new. Moving in that direction to the culmination and the climax of all of eternity. And will we improve in the areas of science and technology? Undoubtedly. Will we improve in the area of math? Clearly. Will there be a better Mozart? A better Beethoven? A better Rembrandt? With richer, fuller colours? Where paintings will leap off the canvas? Of course there will be. 
and think of medicine and education and no more pain and no more grief and no more heart. What a day of rejoicing that will be when God in all of his wonder reveals his new created remodeled reality. My wife tells me this is the most selfish thing I ever say and she's right and I have said some selfish things in my life but I am ready to go any moment. I don't want to have to go through another change of the clock. Do you want to get up another hour early? I don't want to do that ever again. I don't want to face the reality of my own sin. I don't want to fail again. I don't want to have to wrestle and fight. But I want to be in his presence. I cannot wait for that moment. No wonder John is excited. And when he's writing in the first century, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to seven congregations in Asia Minor who are going through a period of persecution. And he's saying to them this. Things are not always what they seem. And he has not abandoned you. And he has not left you. And he will not get impatient with you. And he will not give up on you. He has you. You are his. You are his. Let me try and wrap all of this up this morning if I may. The passage tells us that we will walk in the light of God's love and glory and goodness. In his equipping and enabling and by his strengthening. Back in 1990 and 91, I worked for Dr. Billy Graham for about 14 to 16 months. And off and on, I've worked with the Graham Association in various projects. More recently, last May, in a major uh, conference in Washington, D.C., I was privileged to be there and participate. And in the early 2000s, I was in the Asheville area, and Dr. Graham, with great kindness, invited me to come and visit him in his home in Montreat. And he lives in a very modest mountain cabin. When you, he met me at the door, shook hands, I stepped into his home. There is a long, thin corridor to his studies on the left. His living room is on the right. And there are pictures all over the hallway. As you go in, you see his children and places he's visited and photographs of grandchildren and dogs and a typical home. And you go in and he sits down. His living room is not large by any stretch of the imagination. And you sit down and he talks about everything and nothing. We talked about the weather. We talked about ministry projects together. We talked about travels he'd been on. And I spent about 45, 50 minutes there. And I was scheduled for about 20 minutes. And he very graciously extended that time as we got into the conversation. 
And halfway through the conversation, it changed radically and dramatically. And it changed when he began to talk about Christ. The entire conversation went to a whole new level as he talked about his best, his closest friend. His demeanor changed. He was much more animated. His love for Christ was crystal clear. And I sat there. It felt to me as if the temperature in the room had changed. Now it didn't, but that's how it felt. And the hairs in the back of my neck began to rise as I was listening to Dr. Graham talk about the love and grace and goodness of Christ. And I came away from that meeting, driving down the hill, shaking my head, understanding this, that he knew Christ at a level I couldn't begin to even imagine. Even imagine. And what is the secret? He had spent years with Christ in the pages of this book. And he'd known him in good days and bad days. And he'd known him when he was blessed and blessed enormously. And he'd also known him in the midst of challenging days when things did not go well. And like Christians down through the millennia, Dr. Graham would say to you today, things are not always as they seem. And if you want to know him at that deeper, richer, fuller level, it happens when we submit and surrender each moment of each day into the hands of God and live in obedience to him. And please hear me when I say this. There is no better, fuller, richer life. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms. That's what John is telling us in this chapter. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the enormity of the book of Revelation. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Thank you that things are not always as they seem because you, the Lord God Almighty, Hold all of history in the palm of your hands. Enable us to feel and sense you at work in our lives. Father, hear our prayers. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.